Welcome again, everyone. We are going to stay in the Old Testament, and um, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 to 19. Genesis 17, 15 to 19. And this is staying with the same theme that you just heard Kevin read from about Sarah and Abraham. And uh, this time, Abraham laughs. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give her I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And so here we see a chapter before, which was just read, um, that Abraham had laughed. And then the next chapter, we see Sarah uh, overhearing God as he visited Abraham when he was going to uh, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was right before that, he told Abraham that Sarah would also uh, bear him a son, and Sarah laughed. And so they were obviously in shock because of their age. How is this going to be? So I would say one of the best Uh, qualities of a good leader, especially a good coach, is to discover what makes your people, your players, tick. What motivates them? What causes them to get out of bed in the morning or go to work for a living? Is it pride? Is it fame? Is it survival? Is it recognition? As a youth football coach, We have a player, let's say, that gets extremely angry when he makes a mistake. Oftentimes, this means he's very competitive. He wants to be the best. So the coach's job is to find out why. Why is this? What's causing him to tick? Is he trying to impress his friends? Is one of his girlfriends, one of the cheerleaders? Is his father looking on? Or does he just thrive on winning? And the coach then uses that, often as a tactic, to motivate the player. And I admit I've been guilty of this as a youth football coach. One time my son, Ezzy, was on the sidelines. This was actually a year that I wasn't coaching. And during a game, he kept nagging the coach to put him on defense. He was a defensive player and he wanted to get in the game. He was nagging him. If you know my son, Ezra, he tends to have that ability. He's very good at that. And uh, he wanted to make a tackle. He went in for a few plays, and even if he was nowhere near the ball, he would run up to the pile and dive on it or dive near it. And then he would run back to the coach and say, was that a tackle? And then, uh, Dad, did, did I do that tackle? And actually, 
you know, he did make a few tackles. But the coach asked him, he says, I'm glad you're so interested in getting in the game and wanting to tackle, but what's going on today? Why are you so motivated today? And he said, well, my dad told me for every tackle I make, he gives me a dollar. <laughs> and it was true. He says, I get $3 for an interception, and I get $5 if I score a touchdown. So can I go in on offense? And he wasn't allowed to do that. He says, Ezzy, you're on defense. You can't do that. Now, <clears throat> it's not a very good chance you're going to score on defense, but it can happen as a lineman, I guess. Ezzy's only nine, and he's doing well getting used to tackle football, but regardless of how much money I try to motivate him with to score a touchdown, if he's not on offense, it's not going to work. And when you try to motivate somebody with something that is nearly impossible, whatever you dangle in front of them will not work either. <clears throat> Abraham, the man in our passage today, he was a motivated man. He had a big astronomical goal to achieve. God said that through your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Kings are going to come from you. He was promised this by God. He must have felt overwhelmed, excited, and even bad sometimes because he was a failure at certain things. He, he often sinned. He often didn't trust God. He made some mistakes, but he always kept going. Again, he was around 100. His wife was 90. And so despite this complete inability to achieve this task, he tried to do it on his own. And so him and Sarah had a plan. You know what? Sarah said, go marry my, uh, my, my maidservant, Hagar. And Abraham said, good idea. You know, I got this. Hold my spear, right? And he went and he, went and he conceived with his, his maidservant, Harris, or Sarah's maidservant, married her, and they had Ishmael. And this was Abraham's idea of making things work for God. He was going to make it work. This has to be how God wanted it to happen. And so God's had a different plan. He said, it's not going to be through Hagar. Your, the blessing that I promised you is going to be with your wife, Sarah. Through her, the promise is going to come. And again, he, he heard this, we, um, he fell on his face, a little child be born to me, 100 years old, Sarah, 90 years old. And then Abraham said to God, oh, that, that, well, how about Ishmael? Can he live before you? This is already set up, God. Take Ishmael, bless him. And God said he's going to be blessed too, but this is different. No, I don't know about you, but have you ever been called by God? You ever have a sense of a calling that God has given you. But when you do the math and you connect the dots, you see that it's nearly impossible for this to happen. How is this going to work? And then what you do is you start to rely on your own abilities and your own ways to figure this out. And oftentimes you run ahead of God. And Satan likes that. Because oftentimes he's not able to stumble you into sin as easy as it is for him to stumble you into sin of going ahead of God. Because it looks like, oh, this is a path that God's, it's got to be good. It's a godly thing I'm doing. And he'll go, yeah, and he'll start to push you. 
That happened with me, excuse me, uh, back in 2008 when I planted a church in Millstone. It was all about me. I knew God had called me to be a pastor. I knew that God had called me for ministry. And I said, I have it all figured out. I was making really good money. I'll just throw money at this. I'll get a building. I'll get advertisements. We'll get this. We'll get that. And the church failed miserably because it was in my own strength. And I had to pass that pulpit on to someone else. Oftentimes, God allows us to rely on our own strength. And he does this so that way we can spin our wheels perpetually until we see that smoke burning rubber and we realize, you know what? We're not going anywhere. We're spinning our wheels. And then eventually we stop and we realize we cannot do this on our own. I have to, I have to lay down. I have to literally give up my own ability and start to rely on God. For him to do this. This is where Abraham was in this passage. He had to trust God's promise. Impossible. But it was going to be God's way in God's timing. Now this is 2023 almost. I planted that church in 2008. God's timing was a lot different than my timing because everything looked perfect in my way. Everything looked like this is all, but I got ahead of God. And meanwhile, God had to do a lot more work in me for me to be able to stand up in front of a congregation and shepherd and do all the things that pastors do. And so he had to work on my family to get them ready for the venture. And all the other components had to come together. I had to be completely done everything else. He didn't want me doing 20 other things like I thought that I could do and like I was used to doing. So I stopped. And this may be different for everybody, but it was God's way of putting me in my place and bringing me to the point of absolute, complete surrender because I had no other way to do it. And as soon as that happened, doors started to open. God was able now to work and do what he does. And so Abraham's job was now to trust God. In a year, he said, this is going to happen, that my wife is going to bear a son. She's been barren her whole life. And so he trusted it. But why don't we do this? Why, Why is it so difficult for us to trust God in circumstances in our life? I think one of the biggest things that we suffer from is fear. We're afraid to trust God. We're afraid to lose control. We're afraid to let anything else uh, potentially come in and change our life because we like the norm. And when we trust God, we, we often look at all the little ways we're trusting God when really God wants us to trust in a very big way, but we don't take that step because of fear. We're afraid of what that will mean will often be afraid of looking foolish by trusting God. What are my friends going to think? What is, what is my employer going to think? I mean, how am I going to act in front of all my friends if I really surrender fully to God? 
We may even lose something that we, we think we care about and is so critically important. And then we have the really painful circumstances. Like Kevin mentioned, loss of life, loss of a job, tragedy. You know, how do we trust God in those situations? Should we not just get involved and start to do things? Well, yes, I'm not saying that, you know, the let go, let God and just sort of float around and let God sense, you know, where you got to go. Drive, you're driving and you're just going to wait for the sense of God to tell you where to turn off the highway and feel the spirit. No, you, you know the directions, you, you do that. But the, fir- the real aspect of trusting God is going to God first with that situation and surrendering it over to him verbally through prayer. And letting him know where you are and how you feel. Okay? And like Abraham, he, he let God know how he feel. He just said, okay, yeah, sure, uh, no problem. A year from now, uh, I got this, you're God. No, he was like, Lord, how is this going to be? What, what? This is crazy. And God assured him and told him that the, that, that would happen. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when if I ever quote certain scriptures, I'll quote to people. And because they're, they're so used to hearing this scripture, especially the one I'm going to quote now, nine out of ten times when I quote it, people finish it for me, right? Like if you say, John 3, 16, for God so loved well, the world, and they, they finish it for I know that one, I know that one, right? But this one blows that one away, and that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And you already are saying it in your mind for those of you that know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And I often let people say it. And I let them get it out. And then I say, now stop. Let's go through that scripture slowly. Because herein lies the answer. I believe if one scripture can encapsulate God's will for our life. It is to trust in the Lord With all of your heart, giving him everything as it relates to relying on him in that circumstance that you're in and not leaning on what you are seeing, what you're comprehending, what you're understanding to be the reality of the situation. You're not leaning on that. You're not resting on it. You're trusting God. And then when you do that and you acknowledge him in that, then he miraculously takes your path and straightens you out. And so I encourage you to go back to those scriptures that seem you got them in your mind, you know where they're at, but go spend 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour on them alone and really see what the Lord is trying to speak to you. And don't worry, you'll hear the the naysayer like when the king of Assyria went to Hezekiah's people when he was about to invade Judah and Hezekiah was trusting in the Lord. The king of Assyria sent word to the great king and he said, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. See, as soon as you start to trust, realize immediately that that's the negative, the doubts, 
the onslaught of experiences that you've had, the fears are all going to come. So you got to block those out and you got to cling to the word of God. Never doubt God because of a difficult circumstance. I know that's easier said than done, but I'm encouraging you. This is what Abraham did. He doubted God because of this impossible, difficult circumstance of biology (laughs) and what he thought was real. But right after this promise in Genesis 18, as as we read, he visited Abraham again and reiterated it that that time Sarah's womb would be miraculously opened. And she did. She conceived and bore a son with Abraham Just as God said, his name was Isaac, which means laughter. So I like how God, even before they laughed, he said, you're going to name him laughter. And then they both ended up laughing in that that process. And then he was named Isaac. And then it all came together. I could imagine Abraham and Sarah talking. He named him laughter before we even laughed, right? You see, Christmas is about... A miraculous birth as well. It's about the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. It's also, though, about Israel trusting God to do exactly what he said in their nearly impossible situation of being in exile, not having forgiveness of sins, having the rulers all over them. Everything looked terrible. As, as it relates to the Messiah that they were waiting for. And they knew the Messiah was to come any time. Would he do what he said? He's not doing it. Would he send his king to save his people? They missed it. They missed the fact that it was Jesus who was born to be that king. In the Bible, we have an interesting line of miraculous births. Of course, we have Sarah. We also have Isaac's wife, Rebecca. She was barren. God opened her womb. She gave birth to Jacob, Genesis 25. Then we have Jacob's wife, barren. His wife, Rachel, she was barren. Leah, she was was fruitful. And Rachel was barren. She could not conceive. And then God opened her womb And she gave birth to Joseph, Genesis 30. And then one of my favorite stories is Manoah's wife. We don't know her name, but she was barren. She was visited by God like Mary was, like Elizabeth was, like Abraham was. And she was told she would give birth to a Nazarite, a man that would be set apart to judge and lead Israel. And his name was Samson, Judges 13. We have Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. And then we have Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, in her old age. She was barren, and she gave birth to John the Baptist. And then, of course, Mary, visited by the angel Gabriel, and was told, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
And then jumping down to 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? She's never been with a man before. She was young even, probably 16, maybe younger. We don't know. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God for nothing will be impossible with God. Echoing that, that scripture that Kevin read. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is impossible with God. Now, one thing all these births have in common is they all point to Christ. And that's a whole nother sermon we could go to, right? Isaac, Jacob, right? Samuel, the prophet, Leading Israel into the right ways, you know, raising up King David and King Saul, Samson, that type of leader, and so forth and so on, John the Baptist. <clears throat> but the other thing they have in common is they were all miraculous in God opening the barren womb. But here's the catch through the natural process of procreation, all of these births that I just talked about other than Christ, was done through the, it was a miracle, but it was done through the natural process of procreation. This wasn't the case with Jesus. Mary was a virgin, and Jesus' birth was God literally doing what we would consider the absolute impossible. Jesus was placed in the womb and conceived by the Holy Spirit, which is why he is without sin. Now, there was only one other time where God did an impossible birth like this. Does anyone, could anybody think of that? I guess you could say it's two. It's in the garden. He made Adam, and out of Adam's side came Eve. This was an impossible birth because it was God making something out of nothing. Yes, he used the dirt of the ground, but it was the Spirit, again, that gave life to those people miraculously. And Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is, was born to take away that curse that none of us could take away because we were all, we are all, sons of Adam. But then when Jesus comes through this impossible birth, we have the opportunity to move out from the federal headship of, of Adam and move under the headship of Christ. But just as impossible as what Jesus' birth provided for us. So you see the miraculous, the miraculous, the impossible, and now the even more impossible because what he did for us and provides for us. One thing he does that's absolutely impossible is he saved us from our sins. He saved us from our sins. We have such a hard time understanding that. Such a simple concept. But yet we live in guilt. We live in shame. We live in, in the bondage of sin. When, when Jesus could take, when Jesus took away the sin of the world, he meant the sins of his people that believe in him. He saved us 
from our sins because in our sins, we are headed for where sin is headed and that is complete destruction. Sin is going to be completely 100% eradicated in the new creation or if you want to call it heaven, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection, there will be no unclean thing. There will be no tears as a relate of the sins that we cry over even today the tragedies and the atrocities that we could talk about on and on and on. That sin is eradicated from your life. You've been saved from it. You are forgiven. You can live a life free from that condemnation and repercussion of that sin. Now, why this is impossible is because it's impossible to describe the holiness of God because he is so infinitely holy. He is so high and lifted up that there's no language that we can use even in scripture to describe his holiness. We just have to keep saying the word holy over and over and over again. Holy, 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 right? Because he's that holy. And those three, that triad means impossible to explain. He is so holy. So our sin separates us from God and violates that holiness, as holy as that is, that's how much sin violates that holiness. So it's impossible for us to get rid of our sin. We can't clean our life up by ourselves. We can't make up for our sins by doing good things, doing good works, being good people. No, that's all a part of the outflow of loving God. But the debt is so big that there's no way for us, it's absolutely impossible for us to to cleanse ourselves from even the smallest, tiniest infraction that you've ever did against God's law or against God. Even the tiniest little thing, you can't do with all your might, you can't wipe it off. It's like a stain on on your shirt that you just can't get, it's never gonna come off, right? I mean, unless you use like vinegar and baking soda and all that, but, It's always there. No matter how much, if you stain something with the wrong thing, this stain of sin is impossible to get rid of. And so Jesus died on the cross and his blood satisfied that justice of God to deal with that sin. See, the blood of Christ covers, is so incredibly valuable and potent that it wipes away that sin. That's the only thing that can destroy it. And it not only wipes away your past sins, but your present sins and your future sins. You are covered in Christ by his blood and the justice of God is satisfied. So there is no punishment anymore associated with your sin. There isn't any more condemnation associated with it. You're not guilty. The other thing that his birth provided for us is new life, meaning the defeat of death. Now, this is hard to understand because it sometimes means like, well, what do you mean? I'm not going to die. I know Christians that have died. No, because Jesus said that he's the resurrection and the life. Anyone that believes in him, though he dies, yet he will live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. And what he means by that is Christians will have a different experience at death. Oftentimes, Christians die um, 
smiling on their face. Oftentimes, Christians have a peace uh, that's, that's shown, not every situation, but there's this uncanny thing about Christians knowing where they're going and that transition into Christ, into Christ's realm is one of beauty, is one of uh, just, uh, it's a magnificent experience according to the scriptures because you are present in paradise with God upon death. But that's not all. He resurrects us. He promises he's going to resurrect us. And that's going to be something even more incomprehensible, as Paul says. We have no idea what that's going to be like. It's going to far surpass anything that we could think of that's joyous and pleasurable here. Because we're going to live in a world with a new body and a new spirit, a renewed spirit, and we're going to be present with God He says, Jesus says in John 5, 6, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. So when you believe on Jesus, you are in the son, you are in and covered like an umbrella around him. So you are sharing in that life. So eternal life begins immediately when you believe in Christ. And that would be impossible without him coming as a child living and being tempted exactly as we were, suffering and dying like a criminal, like we are and we were, so that way we could be freed and we could be treated as innocent as he was. And that's what Christ did by his birth. He also ascended to the position of the highest authority in heaven and earth. He is king over all. And we talked about this in Hebrews, that we are reigning with him as heirs to that royalty. Okay, and this has nothing to do with the magisterial views of king and all that other stuff that we think of necessarily. It doesn't really, but it does mean rule. So therefore, this earth is now Christ's earth. He bought it back. He ransomed you and he ransomed the earth And he ransomed you for the purpose of partaking in that renewal of the earth. Meaning you are now working with him by the power of the Holy Spirit to not only conquer sin, but also to restore places and things and systems and structures that have been contaminated by sin because they're all under Christ now. That's why it's good to get involved in the things of the world as it relates to the sin and to change it. We need to be that prophetic voice to the world to tell them where truth comes from, to tell them where salvation comes from, to correct them when they do things that are wrong and against God. We're not judgmental and you're, you know, you, you don't know what you're talking. No, but to encourage them that there is a different new way and that way is love. And that's the mark of a true Christian. The way you love each other, the way you love the world, the way people see you is what overcomes sin. Love never fails, okay? It always goes out and it always hopes, it always trusts. And that's what's pushing out the gospel. That's what's renewing. And through that, it's persecution. Through that, it's problems. Through that, it's difficulties. Don't get me wrong. But that overcoming is what's creating, okay? That overcoming of the difficulties is what's making things new. So this birth from Jesus 
This birth from God sending Jesus was an impossibility, not only in what he did and how he did it, but it also makes possible the impossible as it relates to us and our salvation. And ultimately, it foreshadows the impossibility of being born from above. Being, having your spirit being made alive again. It was dead. When you were born, it was dead because of sin. And God does the impossible and makes you alive to him so you could believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul. And you can repent of your sins with that power and you can follow him. And that, it too, is an impossible task. So I want to encourage you that this, for this time this year, Christmas, a Sunday, hopefully you'll have time today to relax and reflect on the birth of Christ. But I ask, just reflect on that impossibility and know that it's not just, wow, Jesus was born impossible, but he was born into this impossible, through this impossible situation to make your life, the things that are impossible in your life possible like overcoming sin, having a relationship with God, living a new life. Don't try and do the impossible yourself. Don't try to save yourself. Don't trust in yourself. Not in your own strength. Don't make any Ishmael's when God has an Isaac for you in his time and in his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, And Lord, although we talked about this impossibility today, we just scratched the surface of what it is that you're doing and what it is that you want to do through the very people in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire them, encourage them. I pray, Lord, that they would keep their eyes on you, on the cross, what you've done. And no matter what impossible situations they see right now, that they would put their full trust and full faith in you whether it be waiting, praying, whatever it is that you would have them do, I pray that you would uh, move in them in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen.